morning, happy Sunday, and happy new year. I hope that you took some time over the course of the start of the year in the last week and reflected on what God did and what happened in your life in the last year and where you've seen him show up. We did that as a family, and I think on a personal level, individually for me, the, there was some sadness coming into the Christmas season that I realized, and it was because there is magic around Christmas that's iconic of the, the little kid years, you know, the golden age. And some of you are in that and you're like, it seems magic except for doing it hour to hour when there's screaming and the meltdowns in the park and at the mall and all that. And you get past it and you don't remember those things. You remember the whole more than the sum of the parts. And I thought, man, now that we're past that stage, is Christmas sad instead of happy? But what I discovered is that there's a different and maybe more mature joy that I'm experiencing in interacting and experiencing Advent and the time together with my family now, with our kids as older teenagers and young adults, the the community that's forming within our family, the desire to be together, the connection, the conversation, the intentionality, discovering the people that our kids are and, and receiving so much from them as well as, as investing was incredibly fulfilling. And so over the last year, as we've been preparing for empty nesthood next year and turning this corner, I've taken to looking at families that are a rung or two up the ladder from where we are. Do you do that? Do you look for people who can be role models from a distance or maybe people that you can lean in a little closer in relationship and find out what's their secret sauce? I've quickly become convinced that people who have vibrant relationships with their young adult children don't get lucky. They don't just stumble into that. And they don't discover that because they wished for it to be the case or because they valued it or subscribed to vibrant relationships in young adult kid years channel on YouTube, but because they prioritized it. Families like the Maurer Richter family. That's, sorry, I should have asked your permission to talk about you, but I guess I'm into it now. That's Pam and Doug. Most of you know them. Pam is, serves as a city engagement director on our staff and their relationships with your young adult children, um, it just, they inspire me. And so I've taken to watching. I mean, sometimes you don't know that I'm watching you, but I'm like, how did this happen? What goes into the sauce? And I think the commonality as we've talked about it is intentionality. And, you know, you guys self-deprecate and you say, uh, we've just been really blessed. Well, you have been really blessed, but you participated in that blessing, right? You, you've stewarded and cultivated the, the relationships in a way that's intentionalized them and led to that closeness that we who are down the ladder a couple of rungs long for. And I look at the Maddox family and several others of you guys, and I think, I want that. Like the Shardima family sitting there in a row together. I think, you know, Dave, and I tell you this all the time, is kind of like a big brother to me. You didn't just get this and like sing goodbye to your mom as she went to heaven over Christmas. The generational closeness and connection that your family shares, you've prioritized it. I've watched you over more than a decade build it and now pass it to the next generation. And Aiden, I mean, he'll be able to choose that, to, to deviate from that course if he really wants to, but he'll have to like grab the wheel and hold it hard left because there is a, there's a, a, a generational pathway, a choice that's been made. 
My point in this is that I think the way it is in our relationships and our families is similar to how it is in our relationship with God. At the end of the day, it's a choice. Last fall, we focused on the subject of discipleship and talked about how, as Dallas Willard observed, nominal Christianity has now become normal Christianity and how there's a generation of Christians that seem to have understood being a follower of Jesus as subscribing to an ideology or um, aligning with a, a camp or doing a set of good things, none of which is intrinsically wrong and most of which is probably very good. But those things don't make a disciple. Jesus said, come and follow me and become my disciples. And so we thought, man, if the hard years following the pandemic did anything in the church, they revealed what was already happening. They didn't create something that wasn't there. You know, half the American church-going populace went away, just stopped going to church, about half. Um, is where the, the, the dust has settled. And that's, a, that's an alarming number if you do what I do. And so I think what it's revealed is that maybe as good-hearted as we might have been, we haven't done as good a job at making disciples as we thought we did. Maybe we did a good job of making church attendees or even making converts or making ideological adherents. But making disciples is what Jesus sent us out to do. And that takes a degree of intentionality that I think the post-pandemic era has asked us to go back and do. And so we talked in the fall about how we're beginning as a church a three-year initiative to ask, what does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus? And we've reduced it to three simple to say, a lifetime to accomplish goals or aims. To be with Jesus, a disciple would be with his or her master. And then over time, in the context of life together with him, to become like him. And then as an outflow of growing to be like him, which is predicated on being with him, then to do what Jesus did. And what I've realized is that the church, and let's get specific and vulnerable, this church, we majored on doing what Jesus did, but minored on being with Jesus and just sort of presumed that we all knew what that is and how to do it. But I think the lack of knowing Jesus is maybe indicative of or is causal to the, the departure that happened in American churches. Jesus said it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, hauntingly in Matthew chapter 7. Many of you will say to me on the last day, Lord, did you see me? I, I, was, I was serving the poor in your name, right? I was teaching the kids in your name. I was going to church and doing all the stuff. And he said, I'll tell you, depart from me. You're not my follower because I never knew you. Doing religious stuff doesn't equate to knowing Jesus. And so we're going back to the beginning, and we're going to take three years and focus one year each. It doesn't mean this is all we're going to talk about, but it's going to be sort of the theme of this year on being with Jesus and learning together what it looks like to walk with 
a rabbi, a master, and to be an apprentice or a disciple, as his hearers would have understood that invitation to mean. And then next year in 2025, on becoming like Jesus, and then returning to, from that foundation, doing what Jesus did in the subsequent year. So that's where we're going. And this year, we're going to begin in this next six-week series by zeroing in on just what it means to be with Jesus. Exodus chapter 19 is going to be where we begin today. We're going to do this series uh, as a progression of case studies. The scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians that of the Old Testament, we have these stories on purpose. Sometimes when you come to know Jesus and recognize that we live in the new covenant and it's an era of grace and relationship, it can cause you to wonder, what's the purpose of the Old Testament? And focus on the New Testament, which is a good and right approach, but it's still there. And scripture gives us a hint as to why. We have these stories as examples for us and warnings to us. That's what 1 Corinthians teaches. And so we're going to look at these stories, one each week in succession, as a sort of case study on how to and how to overcome not pursuing personal relationship with God, what that choice looks like. So read with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 19. This is about Moses. It says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the, into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So the Lord had called them out of Egypt, delivered them in a miraculous, extraordinary way, and said, meet me at this mountain, Mount Sinai, or what people came to call the mountain of God. And Moses, as the leader, went up to get the, the instructions. What next? He said to Moses, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed open my voice, obey my voice, rather, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be, listen, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is important for us to see from the beginning. God calls these people who once were not a people. And he calls them to be the people of God. And he calls Moses as the spokesperson to the top of the mountain. But he doesn't say, you will be for me a priest, Moses. He says, go tell the people, you will be for me a kingdom, a whole nation of priests. Priests are the ones that go to God personally and mediate the relationship with him. All of you are to be that. That was God's ideal. Sometimes we misunderstand the Bible and think that the New Testament sort of revised or reformed this one priest for all the people paradigm and made all of us the ministers. That is true of the New Testament, but it was equally true of God's desire from the beginning. Out of all I made, God said, you, humanity, you are my children and you are my treasure. Come near. And what's clear is that from the beginning, we were made for intimate communion with God. And that's our premise for this 
six-week series. We were made for intimate communion with God, to be with Him and to get to know Him, to experience Him in a personal, ongoing way. Now, in the story in Exodus, for the sake of time, let me summarize what happened next. God called Moses up. Moses comes down, tells the people, and then goes back and spends 40 days on top of this mountain in God's intimate presence where God details the way that being the covenant people of God was to go down. Well, while Moses was up there, as most of you know, the people botched it big time. They didn't even wait for the ink to be dry on the document or the dust to be off the chiseled stone tablets before they blew it entirely. Do you remember what they did? What did they make? A golden calf, right? And those of you who didn't grow up going to Sunday school, you're like, a what? It was an idol. It made a lot more sense if you lived like 5,000 years BC because that was part of the way, particularly in Egypt, where they had spent generations as slaves, people worshiped. They created these golden statues and thought they were embodiments of their false gods, right? And so the people went back to what they knew and they made a calf and they worshiped the thing, but really the worship of the thing, it wasn't like, let's get, it wasn't like what Jesse called us to this morning. Let's just say that. They basically had a big party in the name of um, lawlessness and, and called it worship to the calf. But they, they had a huge orgy is essentially what happened. I mean, it's sort of PG-13 or R, but it's unfortunately <laughs> true. Um, so God obviously didn't love that and interrupted the download of, of the 40 days of instructions on how to be in this intimate relationship with God. Because how do you even begin to approach an omniscient, uh, invisible, all-powerful God? What we wonder now, they wondered then. So God's explaining it to Moses, and he's like, oh, this is, you better go down. The deal's off. The people blew it big time. So Moses goes down the mountain, discovers this, and he's like, man, you guys, you have no idea what you're squandering. I was up there with God. It's so much better than a party and a calf, but you blew it. And so Moses is despondent, right? And that brings us to Exodus 33. So that story is in Exodus 32, and I'll leave you to read that. And in fact, I'd ask you to, as your homework, if you will, read Exodus 32 and piece together this story. But here's where we're going, verse 7 of Exodus 33. This is in the days after that blowing it with the calf and God saying, the deal's off, forget it. I, I want to kill these people. And Moses has to step in front of the like runaway train of God and be like, don't kill the people. Remember, and God amazingly listens to him. Different message, powerful truth. Exodus 33. Now, now, time stamped, fast forward, past calf, post covenant time in Moses' understanding. Now, here we are. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and called it the tent of meeting. So he took his tent, like that he slept in, and he took it a ways away and called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent 
All the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered, the pillar of cloud, remember that's how God led them through the wilderness out of Egypt, was a pillar of cloud by day and then fire by night, representing God's personal presence leading them. The pillar of cloud would stand at his tent door. Sorry, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of his tent. Yeah, and then the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. There's two extraordinary things in this portion of scripture that I want to draw out, none more so than verse 11. Listen to this. Digest this. The Lord used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, face to face. How does that work? What even is that? A chapter later, he says, no one can see the face of God and live. So metaphorically face to face, the fact is he created the whole universe, knows the end from the beginning in the heart of every human being, and he sat with Moses in his tent. This is extraordinary. And I think the way we think about this, if you grew up hearing these stories in church, you'd be like, you'd hear that, and you're ooh, inspiring. But there is a a diminishing of the impact of that that we almost subconsciously do, and it kind of goes like this. Sure, but that was Moses. This is me. Like Moses in our minds gets some special dispensation that we think Scripture gives him. Like he was extra chosen. And we assign an exceptionalism to Moses that Scripture does not. It's important for us to note that Moses did speak to God that way, but the people chose the distance. God didn't push them away and only interact with Moses. Flash back with me to Exodus 20. This is after where God said, you're going to be my people if you're willing. A kingdom of priests, a whole nation of close friends. And here's how it's going to go. He said, come up to this mountain, and I'm going to reveal myself to you. But in verse 18, it says, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off, and they said to Moses, tell you what, you go up to God and come down and give us the highlights. You speak to us because we're afraid of what's going to happen with God. The very God who loved them enough to deliver them from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You speak to us. So it says in verse 21, the people stood far off. God didn't stand far off. God said, I want you to be a whole kingdom of priests. Priests come close in. But the people stood far off while Moses alone drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They chose the distance. Moses simply took God up on his offer. 
terrifying though I can imagine it must have been. And in so doing, experienced his soul's ultimate fulfillment. The intimate friendship of God. That which God extended to Moses, he offered to all of the people. They chose the distance. So if there's anything I accomplished this morning, I hope to dispel you of this false notion that, well, that was Moses that he was somehow exceptional. Do you know that moment that you tap into something you discover you were made for, and it's like for the first time you're seeing in color or firing on all cylinders? That moment where you're like, hey, this is really living. It happened to me when I was 19 years old, and I came out here to Colorado for the first time with my friend Dave Cameron, who may or may not be sitting back there. Oh, there's Dave. Lots of you know Dave. He's one of our elders, Dave and Sonia. Well, we were college classmates, and Dave's family lived in Colorado, and she's like, hey, you grew up skiing. You want to come out here to Colorado with me? So I said, heck yeah. And we came out, and we skied at Winter Park, right? Um, and I, my takeaway was I was having grown up, you know, in New England, skiing since I can remember, like on the hard pack. And I came back from spring break that year, and I was like, wow, you can do it on snow, <laughs> Who knew? And I, something in me woke up. I never, I literally never went back to Killington. I still haven't to this day. My parents retired, moved south. I said, I have to get to Colorado. And here I am. It was one of those moments where you just realized this is living. I remember the, it seems trivial to you. This was actually not an, this is not trivial to me. So then uh, a more serious example I was 26 when I first taught the Word of God to a community of people. I was a young, very young associate pastor, and I was asked to preach on a Sunday, and I was terrified, except when I got up there to do it, it was as if I had been doing it for my whole life, and I've done it ever since. And I don't claim to be great at it, but I know it's part central to what God has made me to do and to be. And just that experience of alignment. Have you had that in your work, perhaps in a relationship or in something that you find God's pleasure in, like I do skiing on snow? Have you had that experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? I think that's a tiny microcosm of what Moses experienced on that mountaintop. His soul's ultimate fulfillment Perhaps it wasn't that Moses was specially favored, but rather that he was specially responsive. His pursuit of God was unrelenting. This is the second extraordinary thing about that passage that I told you I wanted to draw out. And if you'll go back to verse 7, here's what it says. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and called it the tent of meeting. What is this tent? Is it coincidence that God just spent six excruciatingly detailed chapters describing what is best translated a tent of meeting with a capital T and a capital M. The King James calls it the tabernacle. 
It's that thing that they ended up making after all and toting around for a long time, setting up and tearing down that prefigured the temple, which prefigured the Holy Spirit in us, God's personal intimate presence. Do you know what I'm talking about? The tabernacle? Moses, when the deal got scuttled for the covenant union with the people because of the whole calf ordeal, Moses is like, well, the deal is off, but he had tasted. Do you see this? He had seen God face to face. And he's like, the people blew it. The tabernacle evidently isn't happening. And even if it was supposed to, I kind of smashed the tablets. (laughs) A prudential bit of advice. If God ever writes tablets and gives them to you, don't break them. Don't throw them to the ground but he didn't even have the instructions. So he's like, ah, what to do? He's like, God obviously meant what he said and the details mattered. And we saw later the consequences of ignoring the details. Oh, but to be with God, having been on that mountaintop, having looked at him like a man looks at his friend and talked with him like a man talks with his friend face to face. I have to go back. I can't not experience that for the rest of my life. It's like Jack to Kate in Lost when he left the island. We've got to go back, Kate. He's like, I got to go back. So the deal is off. So the tabernacle, we blew it. It's not going to happen. That stinks, but I have to go back. So you know what he did? He took a little Coleman tent. Now this makes it make sense where it says he took it away from the camp. Yay, some distance away from the camp. Have you ever wondered why it specifically says he took it quite a distance away from the camp? Give me a guess, anyone? He wasn't maybe totally sure that he wasn't going to get struck by lightning or spontaneously incinerated, like Nadab and Abihu, or the ground open and swallow him. Like, uh, who are the other two? Oh yeah, Korah and Oholiab in there. No, not Oholiab. Oh, come on, Matt, help me out. Korah and, who was the other one? They rebelled against him and kind of did it their own way. Point being, when people didn't follow God's instructions on how to be in covenant union with him, it went badly for them. And having not seen that happen to his grandkids yet, he was probably still like, this might not go well. So I'm just in case, I'm gonna take my Coleman tent some distance away from the camp so I don't take the people out with me, but I have to go back. And he'd set up a tent, lowercase t, and call it the tent of meeting, which is laughable because the tent of meeting was extraordinary and expensive and elaborate and oh so precisely prescribed. But he had to be with God again. God had made it clear. Exodus 25, flash back with me. Let them make me a sanctuary. Yeah, a tabernacle even. Call it a tent of meeting in English. That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. And what follows is six chapters of explicit 
and intricately detailed instruction about this tent. Layout, dimensions, colors, patterns, materials, furnishings, table for the bread, golden lampstand, bronze altar, golden incense altar, the bronze basin, and recipes for the oil and the incense, elaborate processes for consecrating the priests in preparation for going into the presence of God. Moses bypassed all of it. The people messed it up, but he had tasted being with God and he knew that nothing would ever compare. And here's what we can take from that. Go after God with all your heart and you will not miss him. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, the word of God says, you have yet to deny. Jeremiah 29, the people blew it again a number of years later, and they're again taken into captivity, this time in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah speaks the words of God to them at their lowest hour, and he says, even now, the deal is still on. You will seek me. And you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. And he makes clear, I will be found by you. He doesn't whisper it. He doesn't assert it. He declares it. I will be found by you if you seek me with all of your heart. Two chapters later in Jeremiah, he explains how this would go down. Behold, The prophet spoke for God. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, hey, you should know the Lord. Really, come on. We don't have to twist arms or pressure, coerce or cajole. For they shall all know me. As I intended it at the beginning, I will restore it on the day of the new covenant. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Puts in perspective, Jesus is saying, in the face of all their religious activity, even doing the things that Jesus himself did, I never knew you. See, that they would all know him was his preoccupying passion. Jesus said it simply, and he said it best, seek and you will find. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, free, and restored to that intimate union for which he created us. And so James 4, and we'll end here today. This is where our series begins and where it draws its name. This is the brother of Jesus writing. Sometimes we can imagine it was James, like John, the disciple's brother, you know, one of the disciples. But this is Jesus' brother who lived in close relationship with him, if anyone did. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That's not the Holy Spirit. This is lowercase s. This is the essence of you. He yearns jealously for intimate communion with you. Didn't you know that? He writes. But he gives even more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Here's what is unmistakably, perhaps uncomfortably clear. God longs for you, and he invites you, and he promises to meet you but he will not force you. What sort of intimacy would that be if he did? We must make a choice in response to that grace. This passage is an indictment and an invitation and a promise, an indictment, you double-minded, adulterous people. And that's hard to hear and unpopular to preach, but it is an invitation drawn near to God. And it is a promise, oh, it is a glorious promise. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So what are the causes of our double-mindedness? What forces operate in this evil world against us? What headwinds do we run into in going after God? That's what we're going to look at over the next several weeks. And then what practices, what disciplines did our own rabbi teach in inviting us to become his disciples? What did he model in order to face and best those headwinds and draw near to God. Like relationships with our young adult children, intimacy with God doesn't happen because we think it's good, because we like it on Instagram, subscribe to it, or even believe in it, but because we choose it. And to choose one important thing is to choose not several other things. That's what we're going to talk about this month. We won't likely draw near because we wish to, or even because we recognize the value of it, but because we choose to, and because we learn to.
Do you remember the passage that Pastor Daniel taught in introducing our return to discipleship? Jesus said, come to me if you're weary, if you're heavy and despondent and you've tried everything and nothing fulfills in a lasting way. Come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. We'll draw near to him if we learn to. If we look to our rabbi and learn from him. And so that's what awakening is about this year. You heard Risa and Anders discuss it. We're going to look at the two-sided spiritual discipline coin of silence and solitude, creating space, diminishing and extinguishing the distractions, the competitions for our heart's allegiance, and getting quiet. The hardest enterprise in this fast-moving age, getting alone, listening for his still small voice, discovering the hardest command in all the Bible, be still and know that I am God. There is a knowing that only comes from that stillness. And so that's what awakening is for this year. It's gonna be kind of a training time. It's gonna be a lot less teaching and corporate intercession than it has been in the past. That's a companion discipline. Also lives under the tent of prayer. And we're going to do that more in the months to come. But this awakening is going to be less about intercession together, and it's going to be more about creating space. When I say training, we're not going to teach you from seven to eight, give you a sermon. We're going to create some accountability and some simple structure and practice together. Getting quiet, getting alone with him, and drawing near. So I hope you'll join us for that. The awakening... um, barcode or not barcode qr code that anders made and we threw up there can we put that back up kayla you don't have to rsvp for our sake we would like to know you're coming and prepare but this will create some accountability let us know you're coming and then we'll send you a little reminders that those times are happening and maybe some of what we're going to focus on